Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Morton, a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. This episode, we're going to be talking about the fact that serenity is not a destination. It's not a place which, once we arrive at, we can finally escape the world's noise, disturbance and pain. It's not a refusal to be disturbed. It's not a wall that keeps the world out. It's not the denial of reality. Serenity is not a place. It's a spirit. It's a way of holding ourselves, one another, and the noise in the world around us. Not as problems to solve or disruptions to quieten, but as an invitation to recognise and respond to what is alive inside and outside of ourselves right now. Serenity is the kernel of power we can use to choose what we want to do, how we want to be, where we want to position ourselves in relation to the noise. It doesn't come later. If we can't find it now, we won't find it then. If we can't find it here, then we won't find it there. I think of this idea of serenity not being a destination uh, in a similar fashion to uh, the idea of the arrival fallacy, which according to Tal Ben-Shahar is the illusion that once we make it, once we attain our goal or reach our destination, that we're going to reach lasting happiness. So this isn't to say that we shouldn't desire different things, but rather it's a call to let go of the idea that by reaching a destination, we're going to find um, a sense of balance and wholeness and lasting serenity or whatever it is. Ben Shahar talks about certain celebrities he studied who are under the influence of the arrival fallacy, saying that these individuals start out unhappy, but they say to themselves, it's okay because when I make it, then I will be happy. And then they make it and they might feel a brief sense of satisfaction or fulfillment, but obviously that feeling doesn't last. But this time they're unhappy, but unhappy without hope, because before they lived up with this illusion that this this kind of false hope that once they make it, then they're going to be happy. But they've realized actually that's not necessarily true. And so in a similar sense, serenity, we might hold serenity as this thing that we want more of in our life. We want to be uh, untroubled. We want to be calm. We want to be peaceful. And it turns into this sort of aspiration or this promise. It's this thing that's beyond where we are right now, a thing that we might be able to reach if we only do the right things, buy the right products, do the right amount of certain practices um, or whatever. And we might think that by achieving a particular outcome, we will become fulfilled, enlightened, untroubled. When we achieve it and realise, okay, I'm still feeling kind of the same as I did before, we might then blame that particular thing, say, okay, that that was the problem. I haven't yet got the right answer. Um, And we might do that rather than exploring the way that we're holding the thing, the way that we're holding our relationship with uh, these kinds of pursuits altogether. And so in this episode, we're going to explore the idea that serenity is not a destination and to ask what it might be instead and how this looks in practice. You know, if we can't get to serenity, if we stop thinking of it as this this thing that is just over the horizon, is just around the corner, it's not this place that we can get to in a tangible sense. How do we experience more of it in everyday life? Where can we invite it? And what does it look like? How can we nurture conditions? How can we create rhythms in and around our life that actually make our lives more serene? So let's start by considering some of the ways we might define and conceptualize uh, the idea of serenity. 
And at this stage, I want to make clear, I'm not claiming to have an absolute definition of this word. Uh, but this is a, It's kind of about using the word as a way to explore ideas beneath the surface. So in the sense, I, I guess I'm using the word as a vehicle to visit and explore a bunch of um, ideas that I find kind of useful and interesting and hope that it will be the same for you as we as we look into them. In a uh, Haven theme Cotter session uh, a little while back, there was a, a small group of us who was talk- we were talking about this idea of serenity not being a destination. I'm going to share and elaborate on and, and dive into some of the things that we talked about in that discussion. Um, I love those sessions because you know, I take something I've been thinking about in relation to our monthly theme. It's just usually some moderately vague ideas um, and kind of find some supporting articles or books or, or whatever and just take some uh, clips from those. And then I invite the hive mind to to help kind of probe and expand these ideas from different perspectives and out angles. And it's a really helpful way to examine um, ideas and uh, and podcast episodes like this one are not just the result of my own individual thinking, but kind of a almost like a concertina experience that comes from taking ideas to the group, hearing uh, the way those in the group interpret and respond to and see those ideas and think about them and, uh, you know, accept and reject them. And then me coming back to reflect on those responses and turn them hopefully into an episode that has a, a bit of a through line and helps you as a listener to think about this stuff for yourself as well and consider uh, what you want to pick up and apply uh, out of the things that we're talking about. So in our session, we started by brainstorming, you know, what people might think of when they hear the word serenity. What does serenity mean to you? Um, it was described in a whole bunch of different ways. And I was like, you know, how might other people talk about serenity as well? What What's kind of the mainstream um, mainstream uses of this word? Mainstream and uh, kind of, I guess, how do we see it marketed and all those kinds of things? So it's described as a state of calmness, peacefulness, being unruffled, able to maintain perspective and focus. So we thought about serenity as kind of making space for options, choices, being outside of struggle, um, separation from the world. This is how we often might hold serenity. Serenity as a shield, it's somewhere to hide it's the option to withdraw. It was suggested that uh, Coco Chanel sometimes wore a hat at home when people came to visit so that she could pretend that she was on her way out or she needed to go out if she didn't want to spend time with that person or those people. Uh, it was an ingenious idea at many levels. And did that enable her to escape and experience serenity without getting stuck in situations? Or was it a sign of being in a state of alertness? which is perhaps quite the opposite of serenity, poised, ready to run, always thinking, okay, how can I get out of this situation? How can I get away from here? And then this took us into the link between serenity and safety. It talks about how when we feel serene, we feel safe in our environment, in flow with the present moment, safe in the presence of those around us. And then what's the difference between safety and protection? Is serenity a sense of feeling protected? Do you see any differences between those two things, safety and protection? Protection can bring with it a a kind of power dynamic. And while you may feel protected by a, a wall, a gate, an alarm system, a protocol or a person, their presence is actually a reminder that there's something that means we're unsafe. Safety is contingent 
on protection from something on the outside. This reminds me of uh, being in places like airports. I, I love being in airports. I find the environment of that, like I've got a real strange fondness for being in places like that. Create a nice cocktail of emotional energy in me, I think. Um, but occasionally I find myself pulled out of this state of uh, kind of energetic serenity when I see an armed police officer, not something that we normally see in, in many places in the UK, uh, or I come into contact with a, a security protocol or procedure that's there to um, protect us from potential harm that might come. And so the presence of protection, rather than a reassurance of safety, can actually be a reminder that we're not safe. And so serenity comes from confidence in the safety of the present moment. It can be experienced in an airport for me, but not when I feel protected or not when I'm aware that I need to be protected. Then we talked about serenity as the safety to be yourself in the sense that it's okay to be who we are, to love what we love, to embrace that without fear. It's the inner flow of creativity when we're drawn to what we're drawn towards, not what we feel we ought to do in order to fit in or be accepted. And then this took us into thinking about serenity as an aspiration, as a quest or a pursuit, and how, in many ways, serenity is the absence of pursuit. So if we search for it, it's going to disappear. It's a sense of peace with the present, surrendered to the process. It's about how we go, how we do, how we be, more than about where we go, what we do, and who we be. If we think we're going to find serenity by going to a particular place, doing a particular thing, or becoming a particular person, we're likely going to find ourselves still striving, still, you know, in that arrival fallacy sense, thinking, yeah, I experienced a little bit of it, but where is it? I need more of it. If we can't feel it now, we won't feel it then. Not that serenity is something that is always present as a feeling, but it's always within us. It's always accessible. It's always available in some way. Something we're going to get into more deeply when we think about Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is a text that really speaks to my understanding of serenity, the way that I think about and hold the idea of serenity. We also thought about serenity as a kind of sense of level and balance. You know, the word equanimity has come up a few times in relation to this. Equanimity in the face of disturbance, the ability to remain calm, grounded, unflustered, regardless of what's going on around you. I I think there's some usefulness to this idea, but it doesn't quite capture the whole picture. Serenity, as I think of it, is about kind of accepting the disturbance and allowing space for our authentic reactions to, to kind of be, to, to happen in the way that they need to. We talked about serenity as a moving destination, like a home that comes with us wherever we go, something we grow, nurture and reinforce within ourselves, built from the inside out with things like uh, aware acceptance, connection, meaning, creativity, or a spirit of expansion and possibility, and playfulness i.e. inviting the time to stop and be, even if that means being unproductive or uh, non-utilitarian. Where strain causes stress, serenity is caused when we release the tension caused by pushing right up to the edges of our capacity. It's about knowing what matters to us, being plugged into the values at the core of our everyday being. It's peace with the choices we make, knowing that what we've chosen to do comes from an intentional and considered place. It's an anchor we can use to orientate ourselves in a world of infinite possibilities, 
where we are limited by our finite capabilities. We have to choose something. Serenity is peace with the good enough choices that we make. And finally, we looked at serenity as the calm that comes after the storm. The inner emotional ride that reacts to a situation, an experience or an encounter that might be an explosion of emotion and feeling, a storm that needs to happen. Serenity is that feeling afterwards when everything is out. The feelings can be named, they can be held, they can be let go. The clouds are able to disperse and dissipate. I think serenity is found in both letting the storm do its thing and in making space for that aftermath moment. It's probably not even just the calm after the storm, it's surrender to the storm itself. It's knowing that in order to process life, sometimes the storm needs to happen. That's not to say it's okay for that explosion of emotion to to create havoc and destroy things and people and all sorts of other things in the world around us. You know, part of this serenity nurturing is to find um, helpful, healthy and non-destructive actions, rhythms, responses for those explosions to occur. And this might require good communication with people around us. Sometimes you might need a massive cry and it might look like the world is falling down around you, especially to people who are like uh, unaware of of what this uh, looks like for you. But if people understand what you need in those moments, they can help nurture the serenity. You might not need them to, to kind of console you. You just want them to still be there in an hour when the last tear falls and you're ready to order takeaway. A question I get asked in The Haven is about this, the difference between serenity and tranquility. Uh, they're separate themes over the course of our year. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of like, aren't they the same? Um, or at least very similar. Um, and uh, there are definite crossovers. And I'm getting more and more clear on the distinction as time passes between them. I, when I first came up with the nine core Haven themes, I had this intuitive hunch that they ought to be there both of them separate. Um, but, and I, I was like, I, I, I think they're different. <laughs> and over time, I'm, I'm either figuring out what the difference is or, or I'm sort of just defining the difference myself. I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, and again, I'm not suggesting that I hold the true or universal de- definition of either word, but rather I use these words to, to kind of s- separate, explore and unpick two fairly distinct concepts. So the way I think of serenity is it helps peace flow from the inside to the outside, from the inside of us to the to the world outside of us. And tranquility aims to invite peace from the outside to the inside. So as we kind of look at our environment around us, as we look at things that that happen, uh, our routines, our relationships, all of those kinds of things, how are they then leading to kind of inner peace? What, what conditions need to be in place to affect us uh, positively inside. So both are about inviting more peace and calm into our world, but they move in, in kind of different directions. And the reason that this feels important is because when the conditions are difficult on one side of that threshold, we can kind of turn to the other one and look, okay, what, what can I, how can I use this to support what's going on uh, with me right now? And so serenity is how we prepare to engage with the world around us in gentle ways. Tranquility is about designing our environment, our routines, our lifestyles and relationships to become like deep sources of energy in our lives. If we're experiencing a lot of internal noise from emotions, thoughts, feelings, we might use our environment, 
our actions, our objects in the world around us to give us an anchor, to, to calm us down, to bring us back to a, to a sense of ourselves. And if we're experiencing a lot of external noise, a lot of strain in what's going on in life around us right now, and it feels chaotic and confusing, we might look inside ourselves for an anchor in the way that we're thinking about and holding the story that we're telling ourselves about those things and about kind of our way through those things. This distinction matters, I think, because it allows us to focus on different sides of that coin, above and below, within and without. And there's always something that we can consider on one side of that equation, even when there's nothing that we can do um, on the on the other. Perhaps all we can do is tell ourselves a story that invites understanding and tolerance. You know, we're seeing the situation from another perspective. That somebody is really annoying us or uh, something going on in a work context or something and okay maybe i need to just tell a story make an assumption regardless of whether it's true or not that allows me to engage with this differently allows me to engage with good faith or a better uh, more expansive sense of perspective maybe we can remind ourselves simply that this is a temporary moment the discomfort will pass the option of tranquility helps us examine the conditions of the disturbance, both in terms of the cause of the noise and our relationship with it, our proximity to it. Uh, maybe there's something in our space that's irritating us that we hadn't actually considered that we could remove or change in some way. It could be an issue in a relationship that hasn't actually been addressed, but is causing a lot of disturbance. Maybe we're getting really irritated with someone, but we've never kind of communicated that or never communicated a need that we might have within that relationship that's not being met. Or in a job, maybe we're dissatisfied with certain conditions or aspects of the role that we currently have. Tranquility is about addressing and, and potentially changing those conditions to invite a better outcome or a more desirable outcome. Serenity is like the story that you tell yourself about the noise that you have to put up with if those outer conditions can't be changed or until they can. Sometimes it takes time to alter things, to shift things, to change things. And this is when the two work together. They infuse one another. They create peace and calm over time through certain cycles and, and rhythms. Nurturing serenity from the inside out can also bring peace and gentleness to the world around us. And this was one of the really interesting parts of our discussion as well. We were thinking about how serene people create tranquil conditions for others. When we spend time with people who have a lot of uh, that kind of inside out serenity, we often get infected by it. It's attractive and it's safe for us to develop and nurture our own inner serenity around. We tend to reflect the energy that we encounter in the people that we spend time with. We might inadvertently absorb uh, their values, their beliefs, their priorities. We all know people who we would rather spend time with than others. The person who, you know, yeah, you, you know they're going to be off work and your heart sinks because actually they're, they're a real source of tranquility for you. You really enjoy spending time with them. They feel safe. You know, they have that sense that, you know, even if something goes wrong, I'm pretty confident in that person's presence, not even, even in their ability to, to cope with it, just their presence. I know that that's a, it's kind of like an anchor of safety um, and I'm going to be able to uh, cope with and respond to the situation, whatever that situation might be, I'm going to have the confidence because they're there. On the flip side, 
the kind of less tranquil person, the person with, with maybe a strong energy vampire inside them, where you hear they're off work uh, or unable to attend um, uh, the event and your heart kind of make, leaps a little bit. You're like, yes, that's, that's going to be nice. This is not a conscious response either. It's like an internal voice that that speaks a truth about the tranquility in the environment around you, uh, and in those those kinds of relationships. When they're around you, you kind of maybe feel a bit more guarded. You feel unable to to fully be yourself. You dread bad things happening or things going wrong because you know they're really terrible to have in a crisis. They're a terrible person. Because uh, they just seem to make it feel a whole lot worse. It's with these people that serenity is a necessary focus a lot of the time. You know, what story can I tell myself about this person or about what's going on for them or tell myself about, you know, what's going on within me right now in order to ride the noise of this moment? At its core, I think serenity is about being connected. It's a sense of connection with ourselves, connection with others, and connection with meaning. So I want to spend the bulk majority of the rest of this episode just thinking about this idea of connection. And I, I want to start with connection to self. You know, what does it mean to be connected with ourselves? It's quite an abstract concept in many ways. But I really like using the core precepts of um, nonviolent communication to provide a bit of an anchor here. So nonviolent communication built on this foundation of, of empathy. Um, so self-empathy and empathy with others. Self-empathy is what allows us to observe within and become aware of our thoughts and feelings so that we might recognise um, what need is beneath them, what need is the other side of them. It's a pause. Self-empathy is a break in the flow of life to consider what might be alive in us at any given moment serenity is awareness of that stuff it's a sense of mindful presence that puts us in the center of receiving relating to and responding to the things going on around us this kind of self-empathy is an ongoing conversation that ends with little requests that we might make of ourselves serenity grows from communication opening up a channel of communication within ourselves allowing space and time to observe and notice what is going on, what is alive here, and then choosing our response based not on an emotional reaction, but on a choice that aligns with what matters most to us, the connection we have with our values, with our direction, with our vision for how we want things to be. So what gets in the way of this kind of inner connection? This kind of sources of noise, sources of disturbance all around us that, that can get in the way of us being able to connect with ourselves empathically from being able to hear what, you know, what is alive in me? What are the thoughts and, and feelings and, and needs beneath the thoughts and feelings? There might be sources of noise from the world around us, but there can also be inner noise, internal feedback loops from overthinking, from second guessing. Our thoughts sometimes dress up like feelings. They tell us that we feel things like um, being, uh, I feel belittled, I feel left out, I felt disrespected. Um, but these aren't 
emotions. They are judgments of another person's action, often helping us kind of avoid the vulnerability of, of kind of looking at, okay, no, what am I actually feeling beneath that thought? You know, when someone does something that makes you think that you've been belittled, the desired reaction might be to retaliate, to lash out, to humiliate them. It might be to hide, to never do this again. But this fails to access the feeling and the need below that, the surface. And an act doing something based around retaliation or lashing out or hiding or running or whatever is not going to actually meet the need beneath that feeling. In fact, it's going to likely exacerbate it, make it worse. So self-empathy is about asking what we feel when we think we've been belittled. When they made that joke about my work, I felt really enraged because I worked really hard on that project and I just needed some appreciation and just didn't get it. Sometimes it's enough just to name the feeling, name the need. It's like, oh yeah, I did. I did need that. And I felt, yeah, I felt really annoyed. And that might be enough. Other times it might actually still be alive for us when we kind of name that feeling, name that need. And we might need to make a relevant and simple request either of ourselves to to kind of uh, to deal with that and to, to meet that need now within ourselves. Or we might need to go and make some request of someone else in relation to it. Inner noise also comes from seeing ourselves through the eyes of others or the perceived eyes that we have of others. In our second uh, Serenity Cotter session, we talked about um, people watching. We were talking about the idea of uh, practicing the art of noticing. Um, And so this idea of people watching came up. I don't know if this is something that you ever find yourself doing or that you enjoy doing. I'm a big people watcher. I, I really love observing what's going on um, in the, the kind of hustle and bustle around me if I'm in a, a place where there are other people. I love making up stories about the lives of strangers in my mind. Um, I also love seeing how people interact with one another and kind of engage with their uh, daily routines and daily lives and, and or like when they're in places like an airport. <laughs> Great place for people watching. Um, And I find it really lifts me out of my own inner world and into a point of awareness, really of the truth that there are billions of subjective experiences going on right now. Um, And I love thinking about how the experience of being me, being subjectively me, my uh, uh, thoughts, experiencing my feelings, my sensations, everything that comes with being a subjective, conscious human being is being experienced by all, all these other billions of people at the same time as well. Um, you know, that, that person who plays a tiny cameo role in my life today, they just sort of maybe wander past the window, <laughs> isn't just a secondary actor in my life. They're a human. They are their own ball of contradictory thoughts and feelings and beliefs and desires. They look like they know what they're doing because they're playing this part in the scene that I'm observing. And as far as I'm aware, you know, they're doing that right. Like they're playing the part as they're supposed to. They're supposed to be there. Great. Um, but what's going on within them? Probably, well, definitely not the stuff that I'm projecting onto them. And we talked about the fact that there's something beautiful about observing people who don't know they're being watched as well, doing something that they're passionate about or really enjoying or uh, in the, the kind of flow of, like watching a musician doing their thing 
or a child absorbed in their own play. We feel in a noise sometimes when we're aware of the gaze of others, when we're being watched, when someone else is doing the people watching and we are the people and we know that it's happening or we have a feeling that it's happening. Maybe it's not actually happening, but it's just the perception and that changes stuff. It creates noise, doesn't it, inside of us, whether that's sort of self-consciousness. Our actions are suddenly influenced by the presence of that other person. Whether we thrive off attention or we avoid it at all costs, it's still noise that might stimulate or sabotage our ability to think and perform. Serenity is not always an easy option when these internal feedback loops kick in. If the noise is unhelpful, we might draw instead on tranquility in that moment. We can take action by rooting ourselves in processes, practices, little actions or behaviours that can cause us to shift in our state, our mental state, our physical state from the outside in. There are quick fixes we might find helpful, you know, breathing exercises, stepping away, those kinds of things. And then there's longer term conditions that we can uh, implement for more calm and peace and space for for what we want more of in in our lives and in our environments. For example, creating uh, positive boundaries with people, uh, with our routines, with with all of those kinds of things, establishing energizing habits, uh, engaging in meaningful creative practices. So tranquility is a good option in the face of overwhelm, in the face of sudden changes and uh, in the face of loss and things like that. When our minds are understandably shaken and chaotic and scattered, drawing on uh, kind of go-to tranquility practices can anchor us um, over time through concrete actions, just coming back to something simple, just kind of returning to those, those things that we can do without thinking. Tranquility practices also help us set ourselves up to make desired outcomes more likely as proactive coping strategies. You know, if we know what causes strain and that strain turns into stress, we can rearrange things further up the river so that we never get to this point um, where it becomes that kind of overwhelming, stressful thing. I think we all have coping strategies and little ways to make life easier in this way. They underpin everyday tranquility for all of us and they're not they're not something to avoid or some sign that you know we're we're unable to be strong or something like that no, like we, we all use and implement all sorts of um, fun and weird coping strategies we sometimes find ourselves in noisy environments caused by an external disturbance that we can't control it might be that it's too late for proactive coping strategies the storm might already be here uh, this kind of noise is often a sensory noise, so it comes through our ears, our eyes, our uh, nose, our mouth, our nerve endings. And serenity may well be the best option if we're unable to stop the cause of the noise, whether that's our proximity to the noise or it's the source of the noise itself. You know, a noisy neighbour, uh, something that's happening where we are, and it's like, just I can't, there's, there's no way to get them to stop making that noise. There's no way to turn that noise off. Um, or to escape that taste or that smell. Um, and so serenity can accept that things are as they are um, in that moment and uh, give us the space to choose our response to the noise as well. And it might include acknowledging the feelings that have been provoked within us, like going back to that, 
yeah, I'm feeling really enraged by that. I'm feeling uh, kind of overwhelmed by that by that sound. Um, and we can recognise how the noises cause disturbance for us. Like maybe we're seeing, you know, what need is not what needs not being met because of that noise. We can then respond in a way that allows us to maintain as much control, composure, and energy as possible. Might just be all we can do is give ourselves the reminder that this too shall pass. The more we develop our awareness and understanding of the differences between serenity and tranquility in this sense, the more they fuse and dance together. Our inner world will become influenced by our outer world and our outer world will start reflecting the state of our inner world. It's not to say they become the same. There's always going to be this difference between the serenity and the tranquility or the the ideas within those words. We're always going to face unwanted noise and disturbance. Sometimes this will disrupt our tranquility. Other times it will destroy our serenity. But we can fill our toolbox with options to draw from that can help us ride out life's storms, hang in there when things are tough, and come back to ourselves in time. The Serenity Prayer is a call for mindful presence in accepting that some things, however much we wish they could, can't be changed. It's a recognition that some things, however scary it is to confront them, can be altered and that peace is nurtured as we distinguish between the two and respond accordingly. In his book Finding Meaning, David Kessler builds on the five stages of grief and adds a sixth, that of meaning, which draws from Viktor Frankl's work in Man's Search for Meaning. Kessler suggests that there's an experience of post-traumatic connection that can occur when we integrate loss into our story of being. We can apply this to many things that don't turn out in the way that we would choose, the way that we would hope, things that radically change our reality and events that shift the trajectory of our lives. Eventually, we will start to connect dots between what we've been through and where we're going next. The way we do this looks different for everyone, but at its core, It's the way that we subconsciously harvest situations and experiences for wisdom. Serenity is our connection with a sense of meaning that comes when we reach a place of uh, acceptance. It can't be forced, it can't be rushed or manipulated. We connect to meaning when meaning is ready to connect with us. And it might not come in obvious ways, but it's the spark that draws us back into life as we integrate the loss into that story of being. It becomes a significant part of the story rather than the thing that brought the story to an end. After the death of his son, Kessler writes, I knew in that moment that I was still in the deep end of the ocean, and I also knew that I was going to have to stay there for a while. I wasn't ready to surface, but even then I felt I would continue to live not only for the sake of my surviving son, but for my own sake as well. I refuse to allow David's death to be meaningless or to make my life meaningless. I had no idea what I would do to wrest meaning from this terrible time. It's a really powerful idea, you know, and I see serenity in this simple acknowledgement, this small but huge acknowledgement of where he was in the ocean an acceptance of unreadiness to surface alongside the commitment to keep going. This really strikes me as as an act of self-empathy. The request we make is just to, to keep going in the face of uncertainty, pain, doubt, 
Serenity is knowing that saying yes to life is enough. It's about allowing this for other people as well. Meaning can't be forced upon us. It's not the same as the kind of meaning that's implied by everything happens for a reason and other such platitudes. But no, like meaning, as Kessler describes it, is a connection that occurs afterwards as we find um, and come to a sense of connection to life itself. It's the choice to integrate our pain into our decision to continue. And this resonates with the rather straight to the point question that Viktor Frankl would ask his patients in his logotherapeutic practice. Like, why do you not kill yourself? He realized this, there's, there's kind of, there's something that sustains us. And he noticed there's something, even if you, you don't know what it is, there's something that sustains people, some kind of meaning that keeps us moving through even the most unbearable of circumstances, like he lived through and observed in the horrors of, of Nazi death camps during the Second World War. And the preface for Man's Search for Meaning says this, his father, mother, brother, and his wife died in camps or were sent to the gas ovens, so that, excepting for his sister, his entire family perished in these camps. How could he, every possession lost, every value destroyed, suffering from hunger, cold and brutality, hourly expecting extermination, how could he find life worth preserving? A psychiatrist who personally has faced such extremity is a psychiatrist worth listening to. He, if anyone, should be able to view our human condition wisely and with compassion. Dr. Frankel's words have a profoundly honest ring, for they rest on experiences too deep for deception. It is natural to want to find meaning in suffering. This is key as a way to sustain ourselves, to be connected with life. If there is purpose in life at all, there must be purpose in suffering and in dying. But no man can tell another what this purpose is. Each must find out for himself and must accept the responsibility that his answer prescribes. If he succeeds, he will continue to grow in spite of all indignities. Frankl is fond of quoting Nietzsche. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. In the concentration camp, every circumstance conspires to make the prisoner lose his hold. All the familiar goals in life are snatched away. What alone remains is the last of human freedoms, the ability to choose one's attitude in a given set of circumstances. This ultimate freedom, recognised by the ancient Stoics as well as by modern existentialists, takes on vivid significance in Frankl's story. So, yeah, that's from the preface to Man's Search for Meaning. And like some aspects of modern life can feel a bit trivial when we compare them to the horrors of Nazi death camps like that. But I'm kind of struck by this question of meaning. And I think it's worth exploring and processing in a real sense. You know, where do we connect with meaning in today's world? What is the why that we have to live? A satisfactory sense of why. An anchor to put down that we can use to orientate ourselves in a world of infinite possibilities that are limited by our finite capacities. Many of the whys that we get presented with, that we get given by the world around us, by people by society by whatever are often deeply unsatisfying they make us less connected less purposeful more kind of atomized we're going through a bit of a crisis of meaning in many ways right now looking in different directions trying to find it you know we we have an appetite for it we really want it but a lot of these options are shaky a lot of them are fragile when we lean too hard on them 
Serenity as connection to a sense of meaning is the rooting of our decisions, our will to survive, our desire to grow, develop and learn in something real and true. What, if anything, is that for you? What is the source of meaning that you draw on for your life? Okay, and the third point of connection when it comes to nurturing serenity is connection with other people. I was interested to think about the nature of our relationship with connecting with others. Again, there's many ways that this has shifted over time as we've uh, got a lot more control over the people we choose to give our time and energy to, uh, the relationships that we choose to invest ourselves in than we have ever before. There are a lot of areas of life where we you know, don't need to engage with people in the way that we would have in the past. And when we think of serenity as safety, how we engage with others seems like an appropriate thing to kind of reflect on and think about. Do we feel safe in our relationships? Do we experience unconditional value in those relationships? If we say or do something stupid or if we hold different views to other people, like, are we still accepted? Are we still loved at a foundational level of being? Many people are missing this kind of safety and assurance and it can have a huge impact on well-being and on serenity. When you're unable to relax and be yourself around others, you're less free and able to explore the possibilities for yourself and for your potential in terms of what it is that you are becoming. There's a phrase actually which reminds me of the less helpful ways of thinking about a word like serenity that says you can't love others unless you first love yourself. It's one of those ideas that kind of presents itself. You read it at first, you're like, yeah, that, yeah, that's, it seems right. Um, and it's presenting itself as a, a route to healthy boundaries and expansive um, kind of pass it on well-being, um, like trickle, trickle down, trickle across, uh, you know, pay it forward well-being. But really it's quite limiting and restrictive because it's rather ambiguous and subjective in its wording. You know, what does it mean to love others? What does it mean to love yourself? Are these things separate? Can they be separate? Um, at a fundamental level, ideas like this set us up to fail because it's impossible to achieve an undefinable objective. You know, failure really is the only option here. Like the arrival fallacy, there's an implicit sense that if you just love yourself well enough, then you'll be able to start loving others and make a difference in that sort of way. You've got to do something in order to arrive at a desired feeling. And if you don't feel it, then you've just not done it right or you've not found the right solution, the right partner, the right job, house, hobby, whatever. True connection is not transactional. It's not a payoff and a trade-off where we say, do this for me and I'll do that for you. Where we see life through a transactional lens, everything is clouded by the question of balancing the books and entitlement. Who's entitled to what? What am I owed? What do I need to give? How do I make this seem like a fair uh, deal? And this way of seeing things and dealing with relationships, whatever, is definitely an option. Like it's not innately wrong or, or bad, um, but it's unlikely to lead to serenity and an internal sense of peace and connectedness. The idea that we could buy serenity with the right amount of time spent meditating or recharging at the spa or uh, time alone or whatever, it's an appealing way to think about life. It's a simple solution to the complexities of everything. But it's also not true. You know, we're not binary beings who operate from two modes, either energized or charging, loving or disdaining, healthy or diseased. 
we are a beautiful mess, constantly interacting with the world around us, subconsciously negotiating, spending attention, energy and time on emotions and thoughts and everything infects everything else. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for yourself is to spend time serving others. It can give you a sense of connectedness, purpose, appreciation, understanding. Whenever we're caught in the transactional mode where we think, I need to just get have enough of A before I can go and do B. I really want to do B, but I, I don't have yet have enough A in the reserves. It's time to experiment with doing B without adequate A. See what happens. I guess this is about more than just connection with others. It's about letting go of certain things. It's about allowing the flow to happen even when we can't control it. It's about allowing the world to do what it does even when we don't know how it's going to pan out. Serenity isn't certainty, it's being okay with uncertainty. Serenity isn't having enough, it's being at peace with the fact you will never have enough. Serenity isn't balance, it's allowing things to be lopsided and unsymmetrical. So this takes us to the final part of this episode where we're going to think about how we might practice serenity. How do we make space for serenity to take root in the core of our being? I like those three ideas I just mentioned as Uh, almost foundational assumptions as we begin, you know, serenity isn't certainty. It's being okay with uncertainty. Serenity isn't having enough. It's being at peace with the fact you will never have enough. Serenity isn't balance. It's allowing things to be lopsided and unsymmetrical. We're not looking for a destination. We're not after perfection. We aren't seeking guarantees, certainties and promised results. The practices related to serenity are personal. They're about surrender observation awareness and response ability the second kata session was about practicing the art of noticing which was inspired by something i read in several short sentences about writing by verlin klinkenborg he writes about noticing what we notice and while it's aimed at active creative practices really and writing in particular there's a lot to take from what he says not least the importance of surrendering the need to to kind of control, to record what you notice when you're observing the world. We practice serenity when we pause to notice what's alive in the world around us. When we look up and allow ourselves to be here now, no judgment, just acceptance and a spirit of play, exploration and curiosity. It's about seeing where the mind wanders. What do we see there? What do we notice about what we've been taken by? The tendency might often be to jump to utilitarian and productivity mode. How can I use what I notice? What does this mean? But serenity grows from the practice of letting go of meaning, rejecting the usefulness of things. Only when we let go of those things are we able to see what they might mean and how we might use them. Allow what we notice to speak within, beneath the surface, rather than forcing this to mean something right now. This requires patience, faith and a willingness to lose that thing, to lose our grasp of that thing and to accept that, okay, even if that goes, there's plenty more noticings where that came from. In our session, I showed uh, three short videos that I put together uh, and they, they all had different kind of images and pieces of music. The exercise was to essentially observe the video and then afterwards to write down everything you notice. So things in the video yourself itself that you can remember and also the feelings that the video kind of evoked in us, the thoughts that came up, anything we noticed about, you know, what is it that you're choosing to write down? <laughs> Notice that. 
Um, it was really interesting to hear from different people about uh, what and how they notice things around each video, because we all notice in different ways. We all notice different details. We all piece experiences together differently. You know, some of us might notice one thing at a time, very methodically. Some of us might notice the complete picture. We see and hear everything all at once and then need to unpick that, figure out the individual parts by maybe going back again and, okay, I'm going to focus in on this. Um, but that And that can be sort of overwhelming. And I know for a lot of highly sensitive people, that's the way we often experience the world um, in, in the sort of initial uh, engagement with certain things. It's everything all at once. Um, some of us see things based on what we can hear some hear things based on what we can see the way our senses work together and work in conflict is also really interesting and we all have different uh, things going on around that what i wanted to explore was how realizing that we notice the world differently can give us a sense of confidence in our differences none of us notice things correctly or notice the correct things we simply observe the thorn that we catch our sleeve on, as, as Verlin Klinkenberg says. We can't do this if we're trying to notice. We're only going to see obvious or maybe contrived things in that case. We're not going to see things kind of as they are or as we are. We're just going to see what we're trying to see. Serenity allows us to notice what we notice, love what we love, explore what is compelling to us. But we can also become a bit complacent or tunnel-visioned in the way that we view things. So another way to practice serenity might be to play with alternative ways of, of doing things, thinking about things or people and different responses, different approaches, not necessarily opposites, just alternatives. If you always go to a certain place, notice somewhere else that you don't go and like, oh, yeah, I probably didn't even see that. Go there. Try that out. It might either bring an expansive experience and open your eyes to, oh, yeah, there's other possibilities here. Um, other things to choose from in the future or it might remind you why you love the other place and so serenity is about being at peace with the choices we make it's about feeling safe and settled not about settling for less than we want but about being settled in the reasons for doing what we've chosen to do these choices and the reason for them will need updating sometimes that's why periodic reviews uh, of what's important to us can be useful looking at what's going on, you know, where we want to be heading, how our current commitments and actions are helping or hindering that and what we might um, kind of do instead or the potential options that we could pick from. Other practices might involve inviting and accepting play. You know, sometimes it requires conditions to open up the potential for other levels of play to occur. For example, uh, a routine of uh, maybe going out and taking photos and then one day you might notice something that takes you on an adventure project. You're aware of uh, faces in the ice that you're taking photos of and you start seeing them and you start looking for them. And that takes you on a whole rabbit hole adventure to something that then becomes something else. On other occasions, play might be beckoning us in and we have to say, yes, it's happening now and I need to, okay, it's, it's kind of now or never. It's not something we should, oh yeah, we'll, de we'll definitely do that sometime. It's, it's like, no, you do it now or it's going to go and find someone else. We had a moment like that in the um, in the Haven co-being, the live cafe recently. Um, there was a, a little, smile, I put the timer on for our 40 minute kind of focus session and a little smiley face appeared on the Zoom whiteboard um, on the shared screen. 
uh, courtesy of, of Gina in there. Uh, and despite my intention to work on so I can't remember what it was that I intended to work on during that 40 minute time. Uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to add a body. And then the whole session became one of playing with creating this quite absurdist image. You know, this it became a five armed person walking a cat, holding a balloon, a fishing rod, an umbrella uh, to keep the rain off. There was rain. There was sun made a rainbow. There was a squirrel holding an acorn, a pot of gold and a UFO. Um, and it was one of those kind of, um, embrace the moment moments, the practice of spontaneity, of accepting, of surrendering to the, yeah, okay, this is happening. Let's, let's go with it. Um, that's also linked to serenity in this way, you know, going with the invitation of flow and finding peace within that decision. It's not always easy, is it? I don't, I don't know about you, but you've, the, the kind of invitation to sponta- spontaneity can often be met with resistance. It can often be met with Oh no, I don't have time for that now. Or oh, I've got these other things that I was planning to do. But it's a it's a muscle. Like the more that we do it, the more we can become okay with doing it. You know, I notice feelings of guilt, the pressure to be doing something more useful, or a voice that say says kind of, okay, well, if you really want to do that, you better turn it into something more useful in the long run. Uh yeah, similar to that message we say like we see it so much we peddle it so much in society it says oh yeah you're really good at that you should sell it or you're really good at that you should turn it into a business um and i, I think yeah in this sense serenity is being at peace with amateurism it's embracing the joy of things for joy's sake and finally on a similar note practice serenity by sharing what you notice this was another thing something we experienced in the practice the art of noticing session checking ourselves before admitting we notice something i've noticed a face in the ice are people gonna think i'm strange what does it say about me that i notice that i see faces in things i love it when people smell nice and i tell them um there's a sign that makes me laugh worded in a way that sparks my imagination like the door to the patient toilet that i saw in hospital why would a toilet need to be patient what might a toilet be in a rush to do? How would an impatient toilet behave? Serenity is sharing this stuff, letting it out. It might not be safe in terms of understanding. There are many of you listening to me say that about the toilet, thinking, what are you talking about? That's just kind of weird. Um, And that's fine. You know, I'm aware it's not necessarily what the sign on the door meant, but safety comes from the inside out. And this means that whenever or whatever you notice is valid. And even if the person looks at you with a blank expression, it's like, what are you you talking about? And they don't get it. There's something to notice, observe and enjoy in that. The differences. Notice what you feel when others don't notice or get you. Do you feel entitlement, mystery, disconnected, resentment, shame? These feelings are interesting. They're valid. Notice them. So there we go, a bit of a swim through the caves of serenity as we've been exploring it in the Haven this year. Uh, It's not a destination. The potential for serenity is always there somewhere in and around us. I'd really love to hear what you think of this. What's resonated with you from this episode? Is there anything you'd like to explore more of uh, or kind of focus on shifting in your own life? Um, feel free to get in touch via the website andymort.com or uh, on social media or leave a comment wherever you listen to this. 
um, it'd be great to yeah connect, hear your thoughts, and uh, and see what you've noticed in you as you've listened to this. Um, and until next time, remember that even when it appears not to be, gentleness is always an option. just one more thing quickly before we finish because you're listening to this i imagine you are a reflective person with a caring creative and compassionate spirit and i want to just quickly tell you about the haven which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now i've built the haven for you with its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural gentle rhythms perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you well i'd love to welcome you in and show you around the haven you can learn more at the haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode take care bye bye